Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret histories and little known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows and more. We are your vendors of vital information for your everyday life. My name is Jordan Runtug. And I'm Alex Heigl. And we are fresh out the box, stop, look and watch, ready yet, get set, because today we're talking about all that. Yes, children of the 90s were treated to their very own SNL, a sketch comedy show for us and by us anchoring Nickelodeon's premium block of Saturday Night Television. Much like Saturday Night Live's original Not Ready for Primetime players, the OG cast of all that have been enshrined in legend, at least for a certain subsection of millennials. Lori Beth Denberg, Josh Server, Katrina Johnson, Angelique Bates, Alisa Reyes, Keenan and Kel, plus latecomers like Amanda Bynes and Danny Tamborelli, all brought us unforgettable characters. Ear Boy, Super Dude, Repair Man, 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 <laughs> The Island Girls, The Grumpy Coach Cretan, The Grumpier Mavis and Clavis, and the awesomely fractured take on Ross Perot. And let's not forget The Big Ear of Corn, the surreal <laughs> visual punchline that popped up in almost every episode when you least expected it. Sure, Ishbu, the foreign exchange student, didn't exactly age particularly well, but I couldn't make it through my high school French class without thinking of Pierre Escargot. And, of course, there's the loud librarian, Miss Hushbaum, who perfectly embodied the hypocrisy of adults by screaming at others to be quiet. And, you know, there was a quiet subversion behind the kid-friendly jokes on all that. And also, the diversity of the cast was nothing short of radical at the time. So, hi, go, I gotta ask, what was your relationship like with this show? Um, I feel like I remember Nick at Night being, like, one of my first media-related disappointments. Because Snick? Oh, Snick. Sorry. Yeah. So I remember like trying to convince my parents to like, let me stay up and watch this. And I thought it was going to be like this epoch changing event. And then like the end of it, I was like, oh, that was just TV. And then I think I started watching Frasier. 
Although <laughs> I do remember Are You Afraid of the Dark a lot. Oh, okay, whatever. We got 17,000 pages of this to get through. It's, all of which is to say, I don't remember very much about this show other than Repairman, Man, 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 and that's it. I don't remember any. I just remember that Echo thing and Keenan Kell in a bathtub. Or Keenan. It's Keenan, right? Or it's Kell? Keenan. Oh, he's Pierre Escargot. Yeah. Yeah. Just in a bathroom going, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Yeah, he's just pr- pronouncing French sentences the way I legitimately did in class when I was trying my hardest. Yeah. Which is when my teacher would have me read for her amusement at the end of class. <laughs> and that's why I have a complex around speaking French to this day. Yeah, I personally loved all that because in addition to just pure entertainment, it gave me a certain degree of encouragement because I was really into comedy as a young kid. And I watched SNL and Kids in the Hall a lot. But for me, it was all about Monty Python. And Mm -hmm. SNL got to me first, and that just sort of established the standards of sketch comedy. And then Monty Python just seemed to just break every single rule. It was so bizarre and surreal. And whenever you have experience with art that moves you, especially when you're a kid, you want to try your hand at making it yourself. And seeing these kids and all that made me think, oh, it's possible because they're doing it. So this led to a lot of afternoons where I'd borrow my parents' camcorder and film little sketches. And Mm. at first they were just restaging some Monty Python skits, which I knew all of them by heart. There's probably at least 90 minutes of me singing the Lumberjack song somewhere (laughs) in my parents' house. And then I would branch into some of my own little original ideas, and they were mostly terrible, but it was probably some of the first creative writing I ever did, which led me to writing plays in high school and then going to college for screenwriting and then eventually working as a professional writer. So all that had a big impact on me personally. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this today. Well, when we get around to uh, doing Just Shoot Me, (laughs) I'll talk about how much that one meant to me did it really and i was a weird kid dude i like skipped over like most children's entertainment and went straight to like middle brow sitcoms <laughs> like will and grace just shoot me and frazier i was seriously watching the like weeknight it was like the simpsons after homework hour and then it was like the network prime to, but i never watched seinfeld and never watched friends i exclusively watched the not hits Oh, well, I mean, I mean the reason I were, corrected you about the Nick and Knight thing was that was almost all I ever watched for, like, well, I also Happy watched, Days, like, Laverne and Shirley, yeah, like, old, I, I, old stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do remember watching a lot of that as well. But, um, all right, let's get into it. Yes, this is just an introduction before we blow your mind. The show is too <laughs> much information, and we do it all the time, or at least two days a week. <laughs> and in today's episode, we're going to talk about the Oscar winner who was passed over for a spot on the show. The historic natural disaster that nearly wrecked the pilot. The time Chris Farley destroyed an entire set in a single take. Danny Tamborelli's awkward incident with Britney Spears. The unusual origins of Good Burger. The mild backstage drama with the cast. And the slightly less mild drama behind Keenan and Kel's temporary split. And a surprisingly touching story about that big ear of corn. Here is everything you didn't know about all that. So before we talk about all that, we have to talk about its predecessor in the realm of kids' sketch shows. You can't do that on television. And to paraphrase Stephen Hawking, we must get into a brief history of slime. (laughs) So this Canadian-produced comedy aired on Nickelodeon early in its existence, from 1981 to 1990. 
And it had a lot of crossover with the 60s sketch show Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. My favorite is, of yours. Yes, yes. It's probably most famous now for starring a young Goldie Hawn who played the role of a ditzy bikini-clad dancer with flower power phrases written all over her body in Sharpie. And Richard Nixon also made a guest appearance. The 60s, folks. <laughs> um, Laugh-In had this segment called the Joke Wall, which was this wall of little doors that would pop open and cast members would lean out and deliver their often very cringy one-liners. You can't do that on television. Had a similar running bit where people would pop out of lockers and do these old hammy vaudeville-style jokes. And also Laugh-In star Ruth Buzzy was on the cast as well. And you know who else appeared on You Can't Do That on Television? Who's that? A very young Alanis Morissette. What about Shania Twain? Um, I don't think that Canadian diamond selling superstar appeared on, uh, what about rush? All right. Pass Celine Dion though. Uh... <laughs> so in addition to paving the way for all that's youth based sketch comedy, you can't do that on television was also notable for pioneering Nickelodeon's iconic green slime, which would come pouring down from the heavens onto whichever poor castmate had just uttered the trigger phrase. I don't know. You know, whenever anyone said, I don't know on the show, they'd have slime dumped on them. And cast members reportedly didn't like getting slimed, even though they'd sometimes get an extra fee for the hassle. Occasionally, they'd try to change their lines during taping to avoid saying the dreaded I don't know phrase. For example, instead of saying I don't know, one castmate said insufficient data. <laughs> but the slime gods are cruel and dumped on her anyway. And, you know, it's understandable that people hated getting slimed because it was authentically pretty gross, especially in the early days. According to the incredible book Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's golden age by Matthew Clickstein, the creators of You Can't Do That on Television originally had something way more disgusting than mere slime. They'd collected buckets of leftover food from the studio cafeteria and added water and planned to dump that on the cast. But the production of the show was delayed for a week. And by the time they shot the scene, the bucket of soggy leftovers had grown rotten and moldy and turned green. But they dumped it on the actors anyway. <sighs> Executives of the network were horrified, but the audience response was tremendous. So they ultimately wrote an entire episode about this rotten food sludge. And amazingly... They kept this as rotten food for a time until the cast basically revolted and were like, stop doing this to us. This is a violation of all sorts of health and safety rules. So for a time, the recipe was altered to cottage cheese and green food coloring, which also spoiled very quickly under the hot studio light. So it was basically just as bad. <sighs> Finally, the slime recipe was switched to a mixture of lime green gelatin powder, oatmeal and water. And eventually they also added baby shampoo to the mix so that the slime would wash out of the actor's hair more easily after several of the female cast members complained. Uh, Nickelodeon later marketed slime shampoo, which I don't remember, but that's a really good idea. Apparently um, you can still buy it. Really? Is it like on eBay or is it new? No, I just Googled it. <laughs> oh, I'll be damned. But apparently the use of slime on TV sketch shows actually predates you can't do that on television. Like most things, it was first done back in the 60s on a British show called Not Only But Also, which was hosted by Dudley Moore, who later became a star in the United States in 10 and Arthur and other movies, and Peter Cook. And they're both 
titans of British comedy. John Lennon guested on this show in the 60s. The show was a big deal. And they had a recurring bit called Poet's Corner, where a guest would be challenged to deliver an impromptu bit of poetry while dangled over a vat of slime, which is called gunge in the UK. I hate that. Yeah, it sounds obscene. Yeah. Uh, they drive on the wrong side of the road, and they call slime gunge. But the guests are challenged to deliver poetry off the top of their head, but any use of repetition, hesitation, or deviation from the theme of the poem would result in the speaker being dropped into this vat of slime, dunk tank style. And you can't do that on television. It was a Canadian production, so maybe they were aware of this British show being part of the, the Commonwealth. So anyway, all this to say, slime has a rich televisual history. <laughs> But it became most identified with Nickelodeon, where it cropped up on shows like Double Dare and in their advertising campaign, and probably most famously in the iconic Slime Geyser outside of Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando. And you can't do that on television and the production in 1990, and though reruns continued to air on Nickelodeon throughout the early 90s, they were eager to have some form of replacement sketch show. Enter all that. Yes, all that was created by uh, mostly by two stars from the sitcom Head of the Class, which ran for five years from 1986 to 1991 on ABC. There was Dan Schneider, who played the character Dennis Blunden, and Brian Robbins played the character Eric Mardian. Uh, neither of those mean anything to either of us, but uh, both of these guys would go on to become big movers and shakers in the TV world. Uh, Brian Robbins worked on Smallville, One Tree Hill, Cousin Skeeter, Something called Sunny with a Chance. What's that? It's like a kid's show. It's like after uh, time. Okay. Uh, and directed Varsity Blues, uh, The Perfect Score, <laughs> Hardball with Keanu Reeves. Wasn't that the other edgy baseball movie? There's one with Freddie Prince Jr., right? Uh, Summer Catch with uh, Matthew Lillard. Anyway. We star with him in Scooby-Doo as Shaggy, if I recall. Yes. What else did this guy do? Uh, the Shaggy Dog remake with uh, Tim Allen. Obviously, he would go on to do Helm Goodberger and uh, Norbit. Famously <laughs> cited by Brian Wilson as his favorite movie. Uh, and he's currently head of Paramount with uh, an astounding C-minus record like that. <laughs> Rose to the head of the class. Dan Schneider became the king of Nickelodeon for just over a decade uh, with a much better track record. And he created and produced not just all that, but the spinoff The Amanda Show, Drake and Josh, Zoe 101 with Jamie Lynn Spears, iCarly with Miranda Crossrose, Victorious with J Victoria Justice, and a young Ariana Grande, Sam and Cat, Henry Danger, Game Shakers, The Adventures of Kid Danger. Uh, but during these guys' time at head of the class, they started to branch out of acting, um, they wrote an episode of the show and were subsequently invited to direct it. And also around this time, they were invited to co-host the second annual Kids Choice Awards along with Tony Danza and Debbie Gibson because this was 1988. What do you expect? Yeah. Uh, what was this big in 88? Metallica, Guns N' Roses. Oh, yeah. Axel must not have been available. Can you imagine Axel getting slimed and he like punches out a child? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the award ceremony that year was produced by Albie Hecht. Uh, he, you know, hits it off with Brian and Dan, and the three of them are discussing the possibility of making a new show for Nickelodeon. But uh, they kind of had to do it on the hush-hush because Dan and Brian were still in a contract to ABC. So, flash forward a few years. Head of the class is over. Brian Robbins is producing low-budget sports documentaries with a friend of his named Michael Tallin. Dan Schneider is, uh, you know, he's what we refer to as a jobber 
that's not what we've heard of that. Uh, jobber is a wrestling term for the people who lose uh, to res- wrestlers who are on their way up the ranks. He's a gigging actor, and this guy, Albie Hecht, is now head of development at Nick. Albie calls Dan and Brian and says, all right, sit comes over, you're free. Do you guys want to make that show? And all three of these guys were fans of sketch comedy like SNL, The Carol Burnett Show, SCTV, and apparently they all bonded over a love of laughing. So they hit upon the idea of creating a sketch show for children. But harder than you'd think, since the material has to be both kid-friendly and funny, and, you know, as anyone will tell you, you got to work blue for the big laughs. Nothing's <laughs> funny like profanity, as I will tell you on this show. Cigar chopping uh, executive. <laughs> make Lori Beth Dinberg use a slur. Unlike You Can't Do That on Television, which followed in the almost vaudevillian tradition of Carol Burnett and Laugh-In, or SNL, which had a dose of social commentary, topical aspect to it. All that was um, designed to reflect the growing popularity of what let's euphemistically call urban culture in the 90s. In Living Color is probably the big success around this time, right? Arsenio, yeah. Yeah. Hip-hop is ascendant. Um, and Brian Robbins is a fan of this kind of stuff. He had just directed a hip-hop documentary called The Show. He was friends with people like Russell Simmons, which... Ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah, Coolio did the theme. I completely forgot to that. No, TLC yeah. did the theme TLC did the theme. What did Coolio... Oh, Coolio, Coolio did, did Keenan Cal. Yeah. I, my memories of this are shot. Um, you know, you obviously have graffiti. You have this sort of uh, uh, garage-esque set. And apparently the, a lot of this stuff was scripted with a lot of input from kids on the show. Uh, the collaboration between the cast and the writers was so central to the show that the producers actually cast the show before they even wrote the pilot, uh, which is anyone with even a surface level understanding of television will tell you is ass backwards. But Nickelodeon uh, cast a wide net searching for the talent for all that. Yes, the auditions were a painstaking process that went on for several months across the entire country. And the kids that they found were all unknowns at the time, save for Keenan Thompson, that perennial sketch comedy overachiever, who by this point had already appeared in the Mighty Duck sequel D2 as the character Russ Tyler. It's truly insane how long this guy's been in the game. We'll talk about this later. But the process of casting for all that wasn't just exhausting for the producers, but for the prospective cast. Josh Server recalls that he was called in close to 10 times and asked to create his own original characters and unique impressions, which for a 14-year-old is a tough thing to do. And he later admitted that he was basically just ripping off Jim Carrey for the whole first season of the show, which if you watch some of his characters, that tracks. They found Josh in Chicago, along with Kel Mitchell, who was then just a sophomore in high school. Kel had a rough time during his auditions because they were held during his midterms, and cramming both for his tests and also for his monologue became too much. And when the time came to audition, he totally froze. And to make matters worse, as he slunk off stage, he tripped over some cords and knocked over some cameras. But he played it off like a bit of Inspector Clouseau-style slapstick that amused the producers, which bought him a second chance. And they asked him to do some impressions, and he launched into interpretations of his old uncles, which helped get him the gig. And I guess making fun of family members was a common approach during auditions. Elisa Reyes says that her mom literally told her, let's think of different people in the family you can make fun of. And I give you permission to make fun of me too if you have to. (laughs) And she got the gig. Elisa has a really interesting background attending the Professional Performing Arts School in New York City alongside Claire Danes, 
Britney Spears and Alicia Keys. And Lori Beth Dimberg has much humbler ambitions. She told MySpace for their gargantuan 2014 oral history by Stephen J. Horowitz and Jill Menzi that she auditioned, quote, as a lark after winning a high school drama competition, which happened to be attended by all that producers. Uh, Angelique Bates, I love this so much, was spotted at a theater competition by the creator of Unsolved Mysteries, <laughs> who recommended her to an agent that got her the all that audition. And she also claimed that she auditioned 10 times, later saying they had us doing improv sketches, all kinds of stuff. I went in fully dressed as Steve Urkel. I guess she did an Urkel impression. That was her big showstopper. Keenan Thompson, on the other hand, said he had a very different experience. Quote, I didn't really audition. He's talking to Complex for their massive oral history in 2014. I had a meeting with the producers in their office and kicked my feet up on their desk and was like, what can I do for you guys? But I guess they were impressed because they hired me. Thus kicking off a theme of boys apparently getting preferential treatment on the show, which we'll get to later. But then again, he was an old pro. He had D2 under his belt. Uh, Elisa Reyes brings up the point that the producers were very intent on having an odd number of castmates since I guess that sketch troupe tradition. SNL had huh. seven for the first season and Living Color had nine. Monty Python had five performers plus Terry Gilliam as an animator. Kids in the Hall had five. I think SCTV had 11. So I guess the producers were adamant about having seven cast members to mirror the original SNL not ready for primetime players. So I just think that's interesting. And finally, in early 1994, they had the OG crew lined up. Angelique Bates, Lori Beth Denberg, Katrina Johnson, Kel Mitchell, Elisa Reyes, Josh Server, and Kenan Thompson. But one person who did not make the cut was actress Emma Stone. She tried out at the age of just 12 years old, and she recently revisited this rejection during an appearance on The Tonight Show. For her audition, she showcased three original characters, including a demonically possessed babysitter and a cheerleader who couldn't spell what she is cheering, which I actually think is pretty funny. Yeah. And though she didn't get the gig, Emma Stone says she remembers the event fondly, telling Jimmy Fallon auditioning was a pretty special experience. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the Body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, 
John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. So once the actors were chosen as All That's main cast, it was time to film the pilot episode. <laughs> Should have been fairly straightforward, right? But then God intervened. The shoot was scheduled for January 1994, the day of the Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles. The day before or the day? This is apparently the day of. I've seen a mix of both, but I believe it was the morning of the night that they were supposed to shoot the pilot in Orlando. And a lot of people were based in L.A. and they had to fly out of there. And this earthquake was one of the most forceful quakes in American history. The rumbles were felt as far away as Las Vegas and Phoenix. So that's pretty far. 57 people were killed, more than 9,000 people injured, and property damage was estimated to be close to $50 billion, making it one of the costliest natural disasters in U.S. history. And Northridge was where Lori Beth Denberg lived, and she later said, luckily no one I knew got hurt, but the city shut down, so I really thought I lost my shot. I ended up taking a red-eye flight to Orlando. Once I got there, I headed straight to the studio after being up all night and feeling so shaken. Then we jumped right into the read-through. And this was before the age of cell phones, and one of the producers recalled getting a message at the hotel that just said, Your wife called to say she and your daughter are fine, which is (laughs) a terrifying message to receive. And I guess it caused a minor rift in his family because he didn't fly home. I can imagine. Yeah. So anyway, as I said, filming for the pilot took place in January 1994 in Orlando. Then came an agonizing six-month limbo period when no one heard anything. Apparently, the pilot for all that tested extremely poorly with focus groups, and Nickelodeon were not jazzed about the project. But then the president of Nickelodeon, a woman by the name of Geraldine Laybourne, watched the All That pilot and loved it. She said something like, this show's great. Why have we picked it up yet? Let's make it. So the show debuted on April 16th, 1994, and the pilot aired as a one-off special. It's kind of what they call a backdoor pilot, where they put something on air and gauge the response. If it does well, they order a series. Ratings went sky high. They were good to go. Everyone was flown back to Orlando to get cracking on new episodes for a full season. And it's worth reiterating that the first two seasons of all that were taped at the iconic Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando, located inside the Universal Studios theme park, which is a pretty sweet deal for a bunch of teens and tweens. Whenever there was downtime in the production, the cast would sneak into the park and ride the rides for free and eat a bunch of junk food. The E.T. ride was apparently a favorite, as was the Terminator 3D ride. 
Josh Server later said, we'd cut the lines and piss everyone off. Uh, and then at night, after taping wrapped, they'd cruise over to Disney World, which is also in Orlando, and catch the fireworks shows. And it was pretty awesome. Laurie Beth Denberg would later tell ABC News, it was like living in a big theme park. It was like being at college and on vacation all at once. But unfortunately, working in a theme park cut both ways, since guided Nickelodeon studio tours were also part of the attractions. So guests would watch the cast not only when they recorded the episodes, but also as they got prepared. They would watch the cast through glass walls, not unlike a fishbowl. And Josh Serve <laughs> recalls moments when they were getting their makeup applied and there would just be a series of strangers walking by staring at them. And after all that second season wrapped, the remainder of the series was shot at Nickelodeon on Sunset in Hollywood. So I guess they probably didn't have that problem there. But aside from these little hiccups, it basically ruled. Angelique Bates had her 13th birthday on the set, and the producers brought out DeBrat, her favorite rapper, as a surprise, which I love. In addition to the rappers and musical guests, we'll run down more of those later, uh, an impressive roster of celebrity guests came through all that. Uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner from The Cosby Show, Tyra Banks, Larissa Olenek, Sherman Helmsley. Hell yeah. <laughs> John Luciano, Kobe Bryant, and Jermaine Dupree. Who we don't talk about because I once tried to book him for a filmed interview segment on VHY and he bailed day of and I had to pay a whole camera crew anyway. We don't talk about Jermaine Dupree. Okay. All right. But your favorite is Chris Farley. Yes. Who, you know, a child at heart. A good bridge between SNL and all that. Yeah, I think besides Keenan, I think he was the only member of SNL to actually appear on all that. Like, kids SNL. And yeah, and he appeared on a special edition of the Cooking with Randy sketch in which Keenan Thompson plays a chef obsessed with chocolate, which uh, every sketch ended with some kind of explosion of chocolate all over the set. Uh, and for this particular sketch, he faced off with Farley, who was playing a chef with a similar fixation on ketchup. And people were not prepared for Hurricane Farley. Um, <laughs> according to Josh Server, the bit was filmed in one take. Thanks to Chris Farley. <laughs> he said, quote, he knew they would make him do it over and over again. So he went out there and literally trashed the stage. It was the messiest thing I had ever seen. And he made it impossible for the production team to reset for another take. Yeah, these kids were champs. The first rule of sketch comedy is never break. No matter what happens, you just keep going. And this got tough for Josh Server once during a scene where Danny Tamborelli was supposed to smash a dinner plate onto his head. And normally the prop people like score the bottom of the plate so that it shatters mm -hmm. instantly. But I guess this time they didn't do it right. So the kid gets smashed on the head with a plate for real. And apparently the stage manager is in the wings mouthing like, keep going, keep going. And he did. Just incredible. Ugh, good lord. This is not just child abuse. The Nickelodeon story is just like it's the machinery uh, of Nickelodeon is oiled with the blood of children. We'll touch on that later. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the kids were heavily involved in the writing of the show, and like most sketch comedy, uh, this was just shot at a pace that would make uh, your average racing greyhound blush. Um, the scripts would be delivered to the kids the night before the read-through. They would come in the next day with voices, personalities that they'd worked out, which, these are children. Katrina Johnson later said, Doing sketch comedy is like doing 10 sitcoms a day each week because everything is set up like its own TV show and camera and sound and all this stuff. And you could just do it over and over. 
But in the early seasons of the show, the writers and producers were a little more involved. They helped the kids create their own characters. Uh, Lisa Reyes said there were times in creative meetings when the adults in the room would ask the kids, hey, do you have any ideas? Or we have an idea for a character, but how would you make it work? The amount of responsibility they gave to these kids is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, Hey, you with the concussion after we broke a (laughs) dinner plate over your head. (laughs) Finish writing this character for me. Uh, Josh Server talks about coming up with how he thought the character Detective Dan should be. And then the producers helped him tweak it. Uh, He later said, I truly believe we had more creative control than any kids in television, maybe ever. They really gave us a lot more leeway to improvise. He was the only original cast member to stay through the first six seasons. Uh, other than Detective Dan, he played uh, Jimmy Bond, Agent 17th. Is that what it is? I think so, yeah. <laughs> That's medium funny. And Bernie <laughs> Kibitz. But his most famous creation, arguably, Ear Boy. He said, that character will live with me for the rest of my life. It doesn't matter where I go or what I do. When I win my Oscar, God willing, they're going to show a clip of Ear Boy. Sure, Josh. Uh, Unless you win it for playing Ear Boy, that's not really how that works. But okay. the gritty Ear Boy story, yeah, Ear Boy begins. Uh, Kel Mitchell also felt that way. He would tell Complex the writers were awesome. They allowed us to be creative and encourage improv and ad libbing. And it was in those such a moment that Kel came up with the voice of Ed from Good Burger. Uh, he told the LA Times that he'd been playing around with what he called the wild dude type voice since he was eight years old watching professional wrestling. That's bizarre to me. I, like you, I thought that he was doing a surfer voice, uh, and this was his interpretation of the voices that pro wrestlers would use. Yeah, that doing make like the any... pre-fight interviews where they're like, you know, what I'm professional like wrestler was he? I don't know. I guess. I'm thinking of like Macho Man Randy Savage, like screaming about, ooh, yeah. <laughs> and like, okay, whatever, man. Sure, Kel. Uh, he first used the voice on the show while playing a pizza delivery guy. The audience loved it. And so the writers created a skit based around the voice, which became Good Burger. And uh, Kel was also responsible for the, giving the character the hairstyle. Uh, he told the AV Club in 2015, I remember I went to the hair room and I saw these early brandy... 90s Milli Vanilli braids. I put those on and it came to life. Uh, another one of his characters, Coach Cretton, uh, was based on a gym teacher he had in high school who was mean about everything. He told the story about a Valentine's Day when kids were talking before class. Oh, look, I got a car. Shut up. There's no love. Play volleyball. <laughs> That's rough, man. All of these did ev- chucking balls at them. Every single child actor had a horrible childhood. Yep. And that leads us into a sidebar about Dan Schneider. Um Well, let's start with the the slightly cute part or at least the not devastating part first. Uh the collaborative atmosphere on all that was fostered by co-creator and head writer Dan Schneider who was the frequent victim of pranks by Katrina Johnson, who was the baby of the cast. She was not quite 14 when the show debuted. I guess there was an article in TV Guide that once described her as a talented seven-year-old boy, which made her, (laughs) quote, in her words, a pissed-off 14-year-old girl. And she was sort of the hellion around the set. She's most famous to me for playing Ross Perot on the show, one of the few instances of all that veering into topical territory, mostly because the man was a human cartoon. 
But Katrina took great delight in sneaking onto sets of other shows that were taping at Nickelodeon Studios while dressed in her Ross Perot outfit and prosthetics. And in her words, running around on set and hiding in places and attacking people, just freaking them out because this tiny old man was popping out of some weird places, which I fully support. But she also had a running gag with Dan Schneider involving Hooters. I'll just quote directly from the complex oral history. Everyone used to go to Hooters in Orlando. That was the spot. This is somebody who was in her early teens at the time, so I won't. Anyway, I would leave all these love notes on Hooters memorabilia for Dan Schneider everywhere. It would be like underwear, a signed calendar, a lip print on a napkin and stuff like that. One day at the end of the season, I followed it up with a paternity suit, like fake papers. Getting a fake paternity suit from a teenager. Um... Is interesting because, well, <laughs> there's some controversy surrounding this man, Dan Schneider, and it involves underage girls and rumors involving paternity. Mm. I will tread lightly for legal reasons. Um, so Dan Schneider has been described as the Norman Lear of children's television, which is a pretty great comparison. Norman Lear created a string of hit shows in the 70s, many spinning off from one another. All in the Family spun off into the Jeffersons, Archie Bunker's Place, and Maud. Maud itself spun off into Good Times, a bunch of shows. Dan Schneider is a similar television fractal. All that spun off into Keenan and Kel and The Amanda Show with Amanda Bynes, who also starred in another one of his shows, What I Like About You on the WB. He also created Zoe 101 with another All That veteran, Jamie Lynn Spears, Britney Spears' sister. Then you have iCarly and Victorious, which led to the crossover show Sam and Cat, plus Drake and Josh, Henry Danger, Game Shakers, all huge shows that are created, produced, and written by this one guy, Dan Schneider. He's incredibly prolific. His 20-plus year reign as Nickelodeon's live-action Golden Boy ended in March 2018 when he parted ways with the company under shadowy circumstances. There's speculation that Nickelodeon encouraged him to back out of his formal contract for a $7 million payoff. Schneider said this was just a mutual parting of the ways, and the network refused to comment any further. But the timing of this, just months after the Me Too reckoning, struck many as suspicious, especially considering the vast majority of these shows that he created, wrote, and produced starred teenage girls. Again, there's the two shows with Amanda Bynes. Zoe 101 had Jamie Lynn Spears. I, Carly had Miranda Cosgrove and Jeanette McCurdy. Victorious had Victoria Justice and a young Ariana Grande, as did Sam and Kat. There are numerous pictures out there of Dan posing with these young women on the set of his shows with what appears to be genuine fear in their eyes. Mm. And he reportedly took home videos of these underage actors hanging out around the set. I have not seen these, but reportedly the actor's body language changes abruptly at the sight of Dan Schneider and his camera. The outlet Deadline Hollywood reported that there were complaints about Schneider's alleged behavior including his alleged, quote, well-documented temper issues for years and his tweets showing photos of his young actress's feet. Oh, boy. And this brings us to the foot thing. A disproportionate number of the plot lines in his shows, for which, again, he is the writer for many of these, involve young girls and feet. Frankly, it makes Quentin Tarantino look like an amateur. There have been numerous threads on Twitter and many YouTube compilation videos over the years that have assembled an astounding number of scenes and jokes involving feet. There are episodes where characters touch each other's feet, draw on their feet, and pour ketchup on their feet. There's an entire episode of Victorious that centers around everyone using toxic fish to make their feet smooth, and adults will rub the children's feet and go, wow, that's so smooth. 
There's another scene on one of his shows where a barefoot Ariana Grande attempts to put her entire toe into her mouth. There's an episode of another show where the characters try to shoot bow and arrows with their feet. There's an episode of iCarly where an apparently nude Miranda Cosgrove luxuriates in a bubble bath until she gets her toe stuck into a faucet, which is actually a Dick Van Dyke show reference. But moving on, it gets weirder when you head over to Twitter. Deadline reported that Dan Schneider's official show accounts would share photos of young actresses' toes in the form of a quiz. He posted a photo of Jeanette McCurdy's, quote, very unusual toes and encouraged Twitter followers to name her toes. In 2013, the social media account for the show Sam and Cat, starring Jeanette McCurdy and Ariana Grande, encouraged fans to write the show's hashtag on the bottom of their feet and post the photo in the comments. This tweet is still live, and in recent years, many adult men have posted photos of their own feet with Dan Schneider as a pedophile written in Sharpie. There's an anonymous Reddit poster that claimed, quote, I grew up in L.A. and was an extra on The Amanda Show a few times. Dan Schneider paid me a hundred bucks once to tickle my feet. In between takes, he asked me if I was ticklish, and I said no. Then he bet me a hundred bucks he could make me ticklish. I was expecting him to reach over and tickle me under my arm or something like that. But he led me to his office. I basically got paid to receive a foot massage and a lot of compliments. Mm. Schneider, for his part, has responded to these foot fetish allegations in an interview with the New York Times given in 2021, three years after he left Nickelodeon. He said he was well aware of these compilations of all of his foot scenes and called the accusations that he is a fetish for preteen feet, quote, ridiculous, and that the comedy was, quote, totally innocent. He added, kids find feet goofy and funny. And there is no effort to sexualize my young stars. But there are some weird moments. There's a moment in Victorious where Ariana Grande, age 16, writhes around in bed in a low-cut top and douses herself with water. There's another scene where she's forced to crawl on her hands and knees towards a character. And still another where a guy shoves her head under a table. Trust me, it just looks bad. Uh, And still... There's a scene where Ari shakes a potato up and down vigorously while screaming, give up the juice. (laughs) The website babe.com also cites examples of questionable jokes from Dan Schneider's slate of children's shows, seemingly referencing boys having sex with vacuum cleaners and asking girls if they want to get slapped with a sausage. There's also a bit of dialogue from an iCarly episode entitled Eyeballs, in which a character says... I want to wash my hands. They smell like clams. Oh, you had clams? No. Uh, there's a wire reference in one of those that I've seen. What, really? Yeah, I think there's a spitball. There's like an episode where they're fighting with spitballs or something, and one of them references a line where um, one of the characters in the wire gets killed by a friend of theirs, and she says something like, how does my hair look? And he says, your hair looks good, and then he shoots her in the head. Uh, and I believe they just recite that line reading word for word in iCarly. I'm pretty sure. It's just bizarre. How, what's the shooting? Um, have you seen The Wire? No, but I mean, what what are they shooting in, in iCarly? Like, what I, are they shooting? It's spitballs. Oh, spitballs. Oh, I okay. think. I or no, they're playing Assassin. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen that? No, I know <laughs> the game Assassin, though. Okay. Yeah, they do a whole riff on... Uh, one of the most famous wire villains getting killed. <laughs> Bizarre. Uh, not foot yes. stuff, but still weird. Yes. 
There is an anonymous comment posted on a blind item website called Crazy Days and Nights, which people in the entertainment gossip industry in the early 2010s may remember, uh, that called Dan Schneider, quote, a monster and, quote, the worst pedophile alive. Mm. This commenter under the name him, which a bunch of M's, got a lot of press in places like Jezebel because a lot of people were speculating that it was actually Robert Downey Jr., his rep says it isn't. This is a whole other thing for you to Google, but it's fascinating and sad in equal measure. This him commenter on this blind item website had a lot of long comments with some pretty explosive claims about Hollywood. Google it. We don't have time to do it now. Um, but yeah, there's a theory that Robert Downey Jr. was calling Dan Schneider a monster and the worst pedophile alive for legal reasons. I should say that's unsubstantiated. <laughs> Um, anyway, I know I'm getting deep into tinfoil hat territory here, but there's a long-standing rumor that Dan Schneider is the father of Jamie Lynn Spears' baby, born when she was a teen acting on his show, Zoe 101. Officially, her boyfriend Casey Aldridge claimed to be the father of the baby, but there are some who say that they were on an on-off period for a few years, and this kid took a payoff to act as the father of Jamie Lynn's baby. Jamie Lynn herself has never commented. In fact, she praises Dan Schneider in her memoir, Things I Should Have Said, which was published earlier this year in 2022. Interestingly, another one of Dan Schneider's stars, Jeanette McCurdy, who appeared in both iCarly and the Sam and Cat spinoff, published a memoir this summer, actually just a few weeks ago, that painted a damning portrait of her experience with Nickelodeon. She didn't name Dan Schneider directly, but she claimed that a figure known as, quote, the creator pressured her to drink alcohol while underage and gave her an unwanted shoulder massage. She further claimed that Nickelodeon tried to buy her silence, and Dan Schneider was indeed the creator of both her shows. Did you mention what the memoir was called? Uh, no, I did not. Mm -hmm. Would you care to take us there? It's called I'm Glad My Mom Died. Yeah, she's on the cover holding an urn with um, confetti spilling out of it. Uh, yeah, it's been making a lot of headlines lately. Uh, check it out if you are so inclined. Um, and a few days before we actually taped this episode in late August 2022, Zoe 101 co-star Alexa Nicolas staged a protest outside of Nickelodeon's headquarters in Burbank, California, alleging that she and fellow child actors presumably including Jamie Lynn Spears, the star of the show, were, quote, not safe during their time working on Zoe 101. So that's all very interesting. There's lots of smoke, but very little fire. The New York Times reported in 2021 that Nickelodeon's decision to cut ties with Dan Schneider after more than 20 years of hits came after an internal investigation which uncovered no evidence of sexual misconduct. But however, the in-house investigation determined that he was verbally abusive on his sets, difficult to work with, and quote, prone to tantrums and angry emails. When asked about the allegations, Schneider defended his work and said that if people found him to be hard to work with, it was because he maintained, quote, high standards as a showrunner. And he also denied that he had improper relationships with children, saying, I couldn't and I wouldn't have had long-term friendships and continued loyalty from so many reputable people if I'd mistreated my actors of any age, especially minors. And getting back to all that... I haven't come across any complaints from any members of the cast of that show. Well, we don't know what the NDAs were like. Uh, anyway, uh, palate cleanser. <laughs> Vital information with Lori Beth Dinberg, your favorite, all that sketch. Yes. And why not? 
Yeah, it's the weekend update bit. I also remember this, actually. And, uh, you know, much like Chevy Chase is the anchor in Weekend Update, and basically that's, you know, one of the ways in which his name started becoming foisted down America's gullet. That's sort of what happened to Lori Beth. In the intro of the segment, they would always say her name, so she got the most name recognition. I do remember just I for sort of that cadence of her name is like seared into my behind my eyeballs. But you love Lori Beth. You love you love It's funny. You love Lori Beth. <laughs> yeah, I feel a kinship with her because uh like me, she was always stuck playing adult roles when she was a kid, which I was also in that position when I was doing high school drama because I looked as I do now at age thirty four <laughs> when I was sixteen. So like we did I Love Lucy in our high school drama program. I was Fred. I was always Oof. I was always the creepy adult. Yeah. So I I, I feel a kinship to her because she always had to play the adult roles on this. Well, she was one of the oldest players in the show, and uh, some of the cast members have referred to her as the fun police because she was the grown-up in the room. Um, she left the show in 1998 at the age of 22 because she was feeling that she was too old to do it. Um, she's, too notched old roles. <laughs> she's notched roles in Malcolm in the Middle. Steve Harvey show, as well as Dodgeball, something called 18 Fingers of Death. What is that? All right. I thought it seemed like something you would know. (laughs) And of course, Good Burger. Uh, She supplements her acting income these days by working as a copywriter at an ad agency and also a wedding officiant. I love this. Lori Beth Dinberg is available to dispense vital information for your your biggest day. (laughs) Um, She explains how she landed this uh, unusual gig on her official website. She says, it started as a joke when a friend I've had since the first grade decided to get married. They weren't very religious and couldn't decide on officiant, so I jokingly volunteered. She got ordained through the Universal Life Church, and the rest, as they say, is history. And that is, um, Universal Life Church is famous for dispensing, uh... Doctor to Hunter S. Thompson, right? Doctor Hunter S. Thompson, and you can legally marry people through them. She told ABC News, I wrote a whole specialized ceremony for them, and people just loved it. They said, this is so great. You should offer this service. So I took their advice. And today she offers personalized quirky weddings, vow renewals, and commitment ceremonies for couples looking for something a little bit different, a little less sterile, and a little more fun. As she says on her site, if you want a wedding off the beaten track, just email me. She said it's her favorite thing to do. Um, And if you're interested in her favorite, all that sketches, she was a fan of Mrs. Hushbaum, the loud librarian. But her least favorite sketch was vital information, which shatters an illusion. She said she worked very hard in getting the tone exactly right so that she could nail the dry newscaster timbre. And she was third in line to host the bit. She said it was, uh, uh, Kel was originally given the role, but he was overloaded with sketches in the first few episodes. Elisa Reyes says she was offered the vital information desk. And then when she was cast as Kiki in the Island Girl sketch, Lori Beth got the gig. And now we must come into the, the gender drama at the heart of all that. Josh Server has talked about the sense of competition that was present within the cast, saying all that was just this creative environment that encouraged us to improvise and be ourselves. And being around Keenan Thompson and Lori Beth made you as a performer want to elevate your game. We were coming in every day and every week forming friendships, but also just trying to make each other laugh in a fun, competitive environment and trying to get bits on the show. But both Elisa Reyes and Angelique Bates had said that, All that, at least in the early season, was something of a boys' club. Angelique said, The boys were always the favorite. Nickelodeon always pushed the boys. That was one of the things that kind of sucked. 
girls fell to the wayside a little bit. There's always the ups and downs of the network. It's never a smooth ride. And in a separate interview, she added, in the beginning, the show favored the boys a little more. I feel we had to kind of fight as women for the roles that we played in conjunction with continuing to have that creativity. But three of the women from the original cast, Katrina Johnson, Alyssa Reyes, and Angelique Bates, have all kept in touch and reunited for comedy sketches on Bates' YouTube channel under the acronym AKA. Well, three of the women, Lori Beth is not involved with that. I hope there's nothing, hope there's nothing weird there. Hmm. We'll get to the bottom of it. <laughs> Finding blind items on Reddit. <laughs> um, but, you know, despite this, uh, you know, comedy is a boys club, especially sketch comedy on a big network TV. I mean, this is exactly what they talked about with SNL. Poor Gilda. Mm. Um, but this show was still undoubtedly groundbreaking for being one of the most diverse shows on TV in the mid-90s, at least as far as sketch comedy is concerned. I mean... Just look at Seinfeld and Friends without a Friends taking place in New York. Not a single person of color on that show for 70,000 seasons uh, versus shows like Martin Living Single or even the disparity between SNL and Living Color. I mean, this television was segregated, but the original cast of all that included four young women and three boys, three white performers, four performers of color. The season of Saturday Night Live running that same year had a cast of 17 of which only four were women and only two were people of color. In a piece written for Zora on Medium, Brianna Holt cites all that as the most racially and gender inclusive show on Nickelodeon during its era. Rias, who's of Dominican, Irish, and Italian descent, later said, When I got off the plane and saw the cast was such a melting pot, it made me happy because I knew there was going to be a little boy and girl out there that could relate to us. Also, it's important to note the kids looked their own age. Um, yeah. <laughs> a piece by writer Jake Flanagan in The Atlantic called The Quiet Radicalism of All That. He wrote, The kids were refreshingly normal looking. Absent were the hyperactive, over-costumed Disney Channel tweens, Lizzie McGuire, or the pouty, brooding 26-year-olds <laughs> playing 16 on the WB like Dawson's Creek or Popular. The cast of all that reflected the nature of its audience. They were growing up. Lanky limbs, zits, and all. <laughs> and in order to cater to this diverse audience, the producers of all that chose a theme tune and musical guest that would reflect this. The title song was famously recorded by TLC, who got tapped for the job after they appeared as the very first musical guest in the pilot episode. And they hit it off the cast and jumped at the chance to do the song. Band member Rosanda Chili Thomas later said it was as if we had known the cast members forever, especially Keenan and Kale, because they kind of reminded us of ourselves. Elisa Reyes said that Left Eye took a ribbon out of one of her hair braids and gave it to her while taping the Aww. pilot, which is adorable. She treasures it to this day. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> Uh, all that was crucial to introducing kids to hip-hop and R&B, booking acts that some, including network executives, thought were too adult for the kids' slot. Producer Brian Robbins consulted with his young relatives on these musical bookings, but they often drew complaints from the network brass. As he'd later say, Nickelodeon thought it was crazy. They were like, why do we have to use rap music? Of course, when all that's ratings took off, these execs changed their tune. The lineup for their guests is really insane. And it is how I learned about so many R&B and hip hop artists. You have Aaliyah, Usher, Faith Evans, Run DMC, Tribe Called Quest, Nas, with Sherman Helmsley as his lead in, Busta <laughs> Rhymes, 
Mary J. Blige, LL Cool J, Missy Elliott, Destiny's Child, Boys to Men, Outcast, Coolio, Erica Badu, to name but a few. Their guests were amazing. And in 1996, Stephen Rifkin, who was then the president and CEO of Loud Records, praised all that in an interview with Billboard magazine, saying all that is one of television's only forums for rap and hip-hop artists since the demise of the Arsenio Hall show. Uh, however, the musical guests did create a rare bit of drama within the cast. Katrina Johnson told Complex, as far as tension, I don't think there was any in the original cast, unless there was a real sexy performer that maybe one cast member wanted to date, but another cast member actually went on a date with that person. And that <laughs> may have happened twice. Thankfully, she laughed this off. It's unclear who the culprit was, but Angelique Bates has talked about how her attempts to get close to one performer were apparently thwarted by her smell. She started Who among us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she started a sketch with Keenan Thompson called Cooking with Randy and Mandy, which we touched on earlier. It involves these chocolate-obsessed chefs usually diving into jacuzzis filled with chocolate. And the odor of chocolate apparently lingered long after these cast members would take their showers. To me, this is a selling point, but apparently it cramped <laughs> Angelique's style when she tried to cozy up to Romeo of the boy band Immature. She later said, I had the biggest crush on Romeo and I was trying to introduce myself like, oh, hey, I'm Angelique. Don't mind the chocolate smell. Mm. Anyway. Do you know that Amanda Bynes has been releasing rap singles? Since when? Last year. Wow. I mean, I wonder if she'll finally get to partner with Drake. <laughs> yeah uh you know maybe all this rap was a formative influence on her hmm. um we don't really get into amanda much on this because she was part of the, I, I didn't realize she wasn't on the show until i think like the third or maybe even fourth season um, i mean you know super rap, talented rap career notwithstanding she was famously one of the most um restrictive conservatorships uh after she had her very public problems with m marijuana and drake and twitter and lighting a fire in someone's driveway yes. um but she was she's out from under the conservatorship as of march and you studied at fit right or studied at yeah. some fashion institute yeah and uh rapping so i didn't you know. know the rapping wow yeah but angelique bates's smelling like chocolate was nothing compared to danny tamborelli's infatuation with britney spears a few seasons later I guess the cast ran onto the stage after Britney performed her song on the show, and then Britney bent down to take a bow, and Danny blatantly stared at her butt. And it was so obvious that the director reset the entire scene <laughs> and made the whole cast film the segment again and told him under no uncertain terms, you know why we did this, right? Don't, don't do that. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs 
programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Obviously, in addition to rap and R&BX, there were many pop stars on all that, like Britney, the Spice Girls, Sugar Ray, Bare Naked Ladies, and NSYNC. But all that will always be remembered for its rap performances. And arguably, no single rapper is more closely linked to the show than Coolio. He was in the charts with his breakout single, Fantastic Voyage, soon after all that premiered in 1994. And he guested twice in the show's first two seasons. And he even credits his career to all that, saying, quote, it was one of the advanced steps of me becoming a household name. And Nickelodeon liked him so much that they tapped him to do the theme tune to the Keenan and Kel spinoff show, which he apparently wrote in just an hour. Sounds about right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and this brings us to Keenan and Kel, the bromance at the heart of the story. Together, they became the breakout stars of all that, launching the hugely successful spinoff, Kenan and Kel, and also the only film born of the franchise, Good Burger. And their chemistry was apparent from the moment they began doing their two grumpy old men characters, Mavis and Clavis, during the pilot episode when they introduced TLC. They ad-libbed back and forth and made each other laugh, and as Kenan later said, they each had the same thought at the same time. Oh, we're the same dude. Oh, may we all be so lucky. And in a way, they had this kind of Laurel and Hardy dynamic going. Keenan had his killer deadpan and Kel with his endless reserves of frantic energy. Producer Brian Robbins, one of the creators of the show, went on to produce Keenan and Kel and direct Good Burger, described Keenan as an old soul and Kel as an eternal child, which I feel like is a great way to sum up their respective energies. Kenan and Kel became inseparable off the set, and their moms became tight, which I love. And producers saw Kenan and Kel goofing around with one another in between takes, 
And this led to the Keenan and Kel spinoff in July 1996, a year after all that went into regular production. The show is not as beloved, to me at least, as all that. Um, my abiding memories are of the theme song by Coolio, Kel's Aw, Here It Goes yep. catchphrase, and of course, his all-consuming, unholy love of orange soda. Kel's a youth pastor now. Is he really? Yeah. Oh. Unholy love of orange soda and holy love, love of God. God. So, the spinoff show, Keenan and Kel, was a hit, and the brass at Nickelodeon had to think on how to spin more gold from these teens. And the answer appeared in the form of their Good Burger film adaptation. And this was very much a case of striking while the iron was hot. The executives at Nickelodeon came back to the production team in late January 1997 and said, Good news, you got the green light, we're gonna make the movie. The bad news is, it needs to be in theaters by July. This was late January. <laughs> The typical gestation period for movies is five to seven years. They had six months. The team was shooting the movie a mere seven weeks later. And thankfully, things were honed after years of doing the Good Burger sketch on all that. So there wasn't, you know, a lot to learn. Kel played Ed, the Millie Vanilli braided cashier. Keenan played Dexter, his uptight colleague working a summer job at the burger stand. It has a surprisingly impressive supporting cast. Abe Vigoda, Shaquille O'Neal, Sinbad... George Clinton, who plays an asylum inmate, a pre-freaks and geeks Linda Carolini, and Carmen Electra makes a cameo, which is weird. Um, <laughs> it was filmed on location at a real-life restaurant in the town of West Covina, California, at a place that's now called Peter's El Loco. And though they primarily serve Mexican food, they have included burgers on their menu. Because why not? That's money on the table. <laughs> uh, Roger Ebert, predictively, gave Good Burger the perfect review, the only review you need. It didn't do much for me, but I'm prepared to predict that its target audience will have a good time. That sounds about right. And now we have to get to the split. Keenan and Kel left all that after the fifth season wrapped in the fall of 1999, and the Keenan and Kel show went off the air in the summer of 2000. Keenan would join the cast of SNL in 2003, ending the three years in an otherwise unbroken streak of sketch comedy coming up on 30 years now. It's insane how long he's been in the game. Uh, at age 25, Keenan became the first cast member on SNL born after its debut in 1975. Uh, it's just kind of marked an important changing of the guard there. However, the thing that I didn't know was that Kel also auditioned for SNL around the same time, presumably, and didn't get the gig. <laughs> Ooh, I know. He talked about this with the AV Club in 2015. He said, I didn't get it, but that's okay. It was a fun time. I think I was just too hyper at that time. I was doing all kinds of characters. I had this bit where it was DMX if he was in Toy Story. <laughs> I want to see funny. that. <laughs> yeah. It was so random. I thought it was funny. And then I did a joke about Michael Jackson loving trees because he had this interview where he was in a tree. I did this whole song about Michael Jackson and trees, which was very funny. But I'm in good company with a lot of guys who didn't get on SNL, like Jim Carrey and guys like that. It was just an honor to even audition. But, and this is where it gets sad, there was a period after Keenan got on SNL where he and Kel fell out of contact, and there may have been some bad blood, or at least some bruised feelings. In 2012, Kel told TMZ, the truth is, Keenan does not want to be seen with me in any form of media or even have my name mentioned around him. He claimed at the time that he nearly reunited with Kel for a big name publication, but Keenan apparently backed out at the last minute, supposedly in an ongoing attempt to separate himself from his Nickelodeon past. 
Kel was very understanding, at least publicly, saying, I have not been upset about this. I respect his choice of wanting to make a name for himself solo. There is no bad blood on my side. I'm not declining a reunion. I know the fans love the show and would love to see some type of appearance with us. I just don't see that ever happening because of how he really feels. Interestingly, when The Atlantic went to interview Kel for a 2013 article entitled Whatever Happened to Kel from Keenan and Kel, as explained by Kel, Kel's publicist apparently requested that the writer not ask questions about the relationship between Keenan and Kel at that time. Oof. So that's 2013. But whatever the case, things appear to have blown over. They reunited on The Tonight Show in 2015 for a Good Burger sketch. And soon after, they did a Fandango ad, which Keenan says was just like old times. And he didn't rule out the possibility of a larger Keenan and Kel reunion, later saying, I think it lives in a very special place in people's hearts. So regardless of what either one of us has continued to do, people always think back on those times and they're like, who loves orange soda still to this day? I can't get mad at it because I love those times too. And I feel where they're coming from because it's their childhood. And just last week in late August, 2022, shortly after receiving a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Keenan confirmed that he and Kel are working on a Good Burger sequel, which they've both said repeatedly over the years that they'd be down to do. He said, quote, I would like to. We're working harder on it than ever. It's about meeting the numbers, letting them numbers match up because I need them numbers. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Maybe that's what, what he wants his pay to be. I'm not sure. So I'll call that tentative, but hopeful. Maybe we'll get the Good Burger reunion. Speaking of orange soda, Kel apparently doesn't bear anyone any quarrel who wants to reference that part of his life to him. He later said, I'm not one of those child stars who doesn't want to embrace it. He says, even at fancy five-star restaurants, the waiter will inevitably ask him if he wants orange soda, which I don't know, man. He's a better man than I am. I think <laughs> I feel like I started glaring at people when I, I used to, you know, I worked at a grocery store in high school. And let me tell you, anytime something doesn't scan, Every single f***ing person in the world goes, oh, I guess it's free. You run out of goodwill pretty quickly. Apparently not if you're Kel. For a time, apparently, Kel would, uh, you know, hey man, cash and checks. You're, you're a gigging actor. You get, he, he would make appearances at colleges where he'd throw orange soda parties. <laughs> Which is pretty Diddy, whimsical. Diddy has his all white parties. Yep. Kel has orange soda. Pretty whimsical as far as mm. former child star sh- goes uh so this was all orange everything everyone would wear all orange and kel would be up in the booth djing signing autographs um and you know he was in i forgot he was in all falls down uh because he's from chicago just like uh kanye and uh he got the call he's in all falls down he got the call the day before saying if he wanted the gig he had to be at the airport at 5 a.m the next morning that's a trend that has continued for kanye's entire career making outrageous demands on people who then comply for some reason. But like many kids show figures in the 90s who dropped in and out of the spotlight, a la Steve from Blue's Clues, Lindsay Lohan, Macaulay Culkin, et al. Kel has been the uh, victim and or recipient of a death hoax. This occurred back in 2006, and like a lot of things from that era, it went down on MySpace. For some reason... They sent out an email blast saying that Kel had died at the age of 27, which is a macabre 27 club bit, I guess. And this led to many people calling him, uh, mostly his relatives. He recalled to the Atlantic, as soon as they called and I picked up, I think they figured it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's laughable, but at the same time, it's a serious matter. 
It's shocking to me that someone would sit there and say someone else died. Oh, you sweet summer child. Think of how many times people start so-and-so death hoaxes on Twitter. Uh, poor guy. So while Kel is still alive, all that is sort of not. Nothing gold can stay, and the original <laughs> cast of the show started to disintegrate. They all went their separate ways. Angelique Bates left first after season two, followed by Katrina Johnson and Elisa Reyes the following year. Then Lori Beth Dinberg left after season four. Keenan and Kel after season five, leaving only Josh Server from the original cast to stick it through to the end of season six in 2000. And as I said at the top of the episode, they had some great new additions to the cast up to that point. Amanda Bynes and Danny Tamborelli being the most notable, but also Nick Cannon, who I completely forgot was on the show, and yep. Gabriel Fluffy Iglesias, mm -hmm. who I also completely forgot was on the show. Uh, but after season six, all that went on hiatus for two years, and they underwent a massive reboot with an all-new cast that launched in 2002. Jamie Lynn Spears is the most famous, but it lost its magic for me, and the show limped along for another few years until it was finally canceled in 2005. The studios where it was filmed, both in Orlando and on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles, were both closed and sold. That was pretty much the end of the story until 2019, when a very high-profile revival of the show kicked off. One of the original co-creators of all that, Brian Robbins, was by this point the president of Nickelodeon, and he was extremely bullish on this revamp, later saying, I would have never, ever, ever canceled the show. It should have been Nickelodeon's Saturday Night Live. All that was a very sophisticated show. Young humor and the level of comedy on that show was sophisticated. Keenan Thompson was at the helm as an executive producer for this new version, and he guested on the show along with Kel, Lori Beth, Lisa Reyes, and Josh Server, who all returned for cameos. I have to admit, I have almost no memory of hearing about this reboot, but nope. it was reasonably well-received and renewed for a second season in 2020, but production was suspended during the COVID-19 crisis, and it has yet to resume two years later. Yeah, I mean, rebooting a 90s kids sketch show has got to be a tricky proposition because adults probably aren't going to be dedicated viewers since children's humor only gets you so much mileage. Network sketch television shows in the age of YouTube and TikTok seem like a hard sell for actual kids today. The nostalgia factor really only works when you get the original cast, now grown up, doing humor aimed at adults, kind of like the Legends of the Hidden Temple reboot, where they had, you know, instead of a kid's game show core obstacle course, they had like an actual terrifying obstacle course for <laughs> adults. Um, this revamp also failed, but still, I feel like the only way that like an all that reboot would work in my eyes was to get as much of the original cast as you possibly could and have it be almost like a mad TV style, like adult sketch show. I would love to see all those guys back together. But alas... This could very well be the end of the story. All that is remembered today fondly for being smart, funny, and in its own way, quietly groundbreaking. But I'd like to end on one story that touches my heart. I don't know, maybe it will yours as well. Before leaving the show, Elisa Reyes took a souvenir, a kernel from the iconic Big Ear of Corn. Hmm. Does it belong in a museum? Sure. But she keeps it as a reminder of her days bringing laughter to kids and adults alike. Not unlike the bell from the Polar Express. I love that. I love that very much. Yeah, I... I don't know. I don't have anything to add to this. I'm touched by... Uh, I'm touched by how much you loved this. <laughs> oh. Have you rewatched a bunch of them? Do you go to, like, YouTube? Uh, I've rewatched some of it. 
Um, some of it doesn't translate well to adults. Uh, some of it doesn't translate out of the nineties, shall we say? Mm-hmm. But it's still, it still felt good to rewatch some of that. It took me back to a, a happy place, and I, I, good. I welcome and I encourage others to do that as well. Well, if that's the show's legacy, I think we can put a bow on it there. I feel good about leaving it in a place of revisiting the the warm cathode ray glow of your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I will do so with episodes of Frasier, <laughs> inches from that rear projection screen. <laughs> My cornea is rotting. Uh, well, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.